Well, good morning. If we've never met before, my name is Chris Thayer. I'm our pastor of Discipleship. So glad to be here with you all this morning as we continue our sermon series, Unique. If you have your Bibles with you, that's great. You can go ahead and open them now to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's all right. The words are going to be up on the screen at just the right time. And they're up on the screen at just the right time because we view the Bible highly here at Good Shepherd. We view the Bible highly here at Good Shepherd, and because we view the Bible highly here at Good Shepherd, there's a couple of things that we like to remind ourselves of virtually every week. The first one is this. Even though this looks like a book, it's not a book. It's a library. It's a collection of 66 different books written by a number of different authors over a long period of time, and perhaps most importantly, it's in different writing styles. And we like to remind ourselves of that every week because it helps us to remember to read Scripture the way that it was intended to be read, in context. The other thing that we like to remind ourselves of and virtually every week, and you might not believe this yet, and that's okay. We simply want to let you know where we stand in leadership here at Good Shepherd, and that's that we believe that unlike any other book or library in the world, that this one is uniquely inspired, eternal, and true. So whenever we read it together, we do this sort of odd thing where we lift it up. Not because we worship the Bible, we don't, but because we worship the God who inspired the Bible. And we want to show in a tangible way that we stand alone under his authority and nobody else's. The other thing that I want to do before I say anything else is I want to pray. So Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Lord, thank you that you have placed a unique story inside of every one of us. Lord, I pray that today that I wouldn't come with wise or persuasive words, but I would come with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Because Holy Spirit, we want you to have your way. Jesus, we want you to be the celebrity. I pray that by everything that happens in this space, that the name of Jesus would be glorified, that he would be lifted above everything and everybody else. So in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen. Well, we've been in the sermon series titled Unique, a sermon series that's been all about the unique ways that God's working on you. We've even given you some great unique resources to help you grow in your living relationship with Jesus Christ. And what I want to talk a little bit about today is how for every single one of us, God has given us a unique story that he wants us to share with the world around us, a unique story that he has given all of us to be able to share the hope that we have in Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says this to a group of believers. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And so today, I wanna do something that's a little bit different than normal. Today, I wanna share my story. I wanna tell you the reason for the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. How he brought me from where I was to where I am today and what he's kind of done in between. And, And in doing that, I hope that some of you might be encouraged by that story that some of you might be challenged by that story, but that every single one of us would recognize that we have a unique way that God has worked in our lives and he wants to share that story with the world around us because he does um, incredible things 
that we could never imagine. And when we pay attention, we see these great ways that God has worked in our lives. See, I was born on a military base in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I was a Navy brat. And uh, when, <laughs> you all laughed a little bit too much at the brat part. When, uh, uh, when, uh, when I was about four or five years old, my father left the military uh, and we moved to upstate New York out in the country. Uh, on the road that I lived on, there was just several houses. We were, I promise New York is more than just the city. And in this, on this street, there were just three other houses, our house, and up on the top of the hill, there was a church. And that church would become a pretty important part of my story. Because when I was four or five years old, in that house in upstate New York, my security was taken away from me. My world was rocked. Anybody who knows anything about children at four or five years old, and really children of any age, is that their security is found in the love that their parents share with one another, and in the love that their parents share with them. But my security was taken away because my father decided that he wanted to leave my older sister, and my mother, and myself, and he wanted to start a new family that didn't include us. But my mom, and my grandmother, and my grandfather, were absolutely incredible to me during this time. They poured into my life, they poured into my faith, they taught me what it meant to have a living relationship with Jesus Christ, and because of their faithful witness to me, there's literally not a time in my life when I didn't trust Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. There's not a time that I can remember when I didn't believe. I used to think that this meant that there was something wrong with my story because I couldn't remember the time and the place that I gave Jesus my life. And then I learned, realized, no, this is actually the way that it should work. Generation passing on faith to generation after generation after generation. So I lost my security in my home, but I ended up finding my security in this living relationship with Jesus Christ, the God of the universe who for some reason cared about me. And so that little white church on the top of the hill that I could see from my house that was several hundred yards away, pretty much every single time that church was open, my family and I were present. We were there. I started to build relationships inside of this church. I found men that I could look up to. I, I created friends. And so church and my relationship with the Lord was just was this place of security for me. And it was so important to my life. My relationship with the Lord was so important to my life that when other five-year-old boys were dreaming of becoming superheroes or astronauts or presidents of the United States or firefighters, me, I wanted to be a pastor. Five-year-old me wanted to be a pastor. And I recognized that is a very odd dream for a five-year-old to have. But whatever else you might say about my dream, can we just admit that I've got some serious follow-through? Because how many boys, <laughs> how many boys that wanted to be Spider-Man or Thor could say that they're living their dream 35 years later? <laughs> so yeah, I, so I actually wanted to be a pastor. That's how important my faith was to me. Well, eventually my mom would remarry a guy named Pete. He'd become my stepdad. He's who I refer to as my dad. 
And my mom and my dad uh, eventually had an, another child, a, a baby boy who was seven and a half years younger than me. He'd be my little brother, Jonathan. And my little brother, Jonathan, my older sister, Brandy, and my mom and my dad, eventually we would move down to Southern Virginia, again, out in the sticks in the middle of nowhere, uh, because my dad had a job opportunity. Uh, he was phenomenal for our family, Christian man, uh, and just so grateful for everything that he's done for our family since he became a part of it. And so he moved down to Danville, Virginia, and because faith was such an incredible part of our story, it was such an important part of who we were, we immediately got plugged into church right away. That's actually where I found friends. Again, that's where I found other people who would pour into my faith and help me grow in my living relationship with Jesus Christ. Church and my faith in Jesus continued to be that place of security for me until I started high school. Because when I started high school, I started to ask these questions that I had never thought of before. I had grown up in the faith. I'd never really questioned my faith. But all of a sudden, I started to have these questions like, how, how do I know that God actually exists? How, how do I know that of all of the religions in the world, that Christianity is the right one to follow? This, this library we call the Bible that we held up earlier, I started to wonder, how do we, how do we know that, that what we have today is actually what it said when Peter wrote that verse 2,000 years ago? How do we know that we don't have just some cosmically tragic version of the telephone game where we really don't know what the authors of Scripture wrote? Now, you might think, and you would be excused for thinking this, you might think, hey, you know, Chris, you were part of a family that viewed faith very highly, and, and, and you, you probably just went ahead and talked to your mom and dad or your grandmother or your grandfather about those questions that you have. You would be right to think that. But due to a combination of my own insecurities, which are great, and the fact that I was terrified of losing the one place of security that I felt like I had in my life with my relationship with the Lord, if I found out that my faith was actually a sham, I took all of those questions, I shoved them in a bottle, I screwed the top on tight, and I shoved it down as deep as they would go. And over the following years, my faith would slowly start to dwindle and fade. I would find out that it's incredibly difficult to have a living relationship with the God of this universe that you're not sure exists in the first place. I didn't fall into any crazy disobedience. Again, I'm, I'm far too insecure of a person to ever think that I could get away with anything. <laughs> but I recognize that my faith in Jesus wasn't what it was. I didn't have this same connection the same closeness that I had felt my entire life with the God of this universe. And then I'll never forget one Sunday, I was in our uh, youth group at church, and a good friend of mine named Wes, great man, he was actually the best man in my wedding, loved this guy so much. Wes had graduated two years before me, and so he was a sophomore in college, the same college that I was going to be going to, and he came back and he spoke in our youth group. 
And he gave me probably one of the best pieces of advice that I have ever received in my life as a high school senior. Wes came back and he sat down in our youth group and I remember looking at him sitting down in the chair and he said to every single one of us who were in that room, he said, when you go to college, you either grow a whole lot closer to God or a whole lot further away. There's no in between because your faith is no longer going to be coupled with your parents. It is fully going to become your own. You are either going to grow a whole lot closer to God or a whole lot further away, so you better pick right now which one you want it to be. And I remember walking away from that Sunday morning in that youth group, having already figured out where I was going to be going to college, and I remember thinking, I need to get this straight. I need to be willing to ask these hard questions. I made probably one of the best decisions that day that I had ever made in my life. I decided if God is big enough for me to give my entire life over to, then he's big enough for me to ask my questions of. And if he's not, then he's not the kind of God that I want to follow. And the thought of this terrified me. But I knew, remember, I had been a Christian my entire life. I knew the call on the life of a believer. Jesus told his disciples, pick up your cross and follow me. Now, when we think of a cross, we think of these pretty adornments that we have in our worship center or these charms that we have around our neck, and rightfully so because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. It brings us comfort and hope, but 2,000 years ago, his disciples didn't hear a charm on their necklace. They heard, pick up your execution device. Die to yourself daily and live the way that I'm calling you to live. So I knew the call on the life of a believer, and I knew that if I was in, I was going to be all in. None of this halfway stuff anymore. And so I went to college, and I started to ask these questions of people that I trusted in the faith. I started to get some recommendations for some incredible books, and I learned that far from these questions being unique to me, that they had been actually being asked for thousands of years. I started to read guys like C.S. Lewis, who talked about the way that the universe was formed from the infinitely big to the infinitesimally small. And that when we step back and we look at the design of the universe, that we can't help but see that there is a designer behind all of it. Or even the fact that that we think about eternity is in and of itself a, a proof for the existence of God. Because if eternity wasn't set in the hearts of men, if we weren't created for something more than what we have now, then it wouldn't make sense for us to even think about eternal existence. I started to read books about Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and and Jesus, and I started to read historians and guys like N.T. Wright, and I learned that of all of the other religions in the world, 
that of all of the other creators of the religions in the world, that Jesus was the only one who claimed to be God and proved it again by rising from the dead on the third day. And that the resurrection of Jesus has so much historical evidence behind it that we simply cannot deny that something absolutely incredible happened. Take, for instance, the disciples, the majority of which were killed for their belief that Jesus resurrected from the grave. People will die for all kinds of causes that they believe in, but nobody will die for a lie they know to be false. So I learned that there's all kinds of historical reliability for the resurrection of Jesus. And then I started to read other apologists, Norman Geisler and theologians and uh, like F.F. Bruce and others who talk about the library that we call the Bible. Now, the telephone game relies on this, on this idea that you have one person who tells one person something, who tells one person something, who tells one person something, and by the time you get to the end of it, it's different. It's changed. Because if it changes anywhere along any one of those steps, you learn that, you know, it, it messes the whole thing up. However, this is not how the Bible was transmitted at all. It didn't go from one person to one person to one person to one person. In addition to there being 66 different books in the library that we call the Bible, when Peter wrote his letter, it was read to a group of people. And then that group of people would make copies and they would send it to other groups of people who would send it to other groups of people and other groups of people. And if we ever question whether or not we have what Peter wrote, all we have to do is compare these letters that went to various different regions across the world with one another. So the, 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 it wasn't transmitted from one to one to one, but it was transmitted from one to many to many to many to many. Not only that, but we actually have historical proof, I learned, that the library that we call the Bible isn't a giant version of the telephone game. Because the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1946. Up until the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest copy of the book of Isaiah, from the library that we have called the Bible in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, the oldest copy we had was from a little bit before 1000 A.D., with the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found a copy of the scroll of Isaiah that was from over a thousand years earlier, from the first or second century BC. So at that time, there were a number of scholars who believed this whole idea that the, that the Bible is kind of like a giant version of the telephone game. We can't actually know what was written in it because of that. And so when we found these, the, you know, we had the one from a thousand and we had one from over a thousand years earlier of the scroll of Isaiah. They thought, well, finally, we're going to have our proof. We're going to be able to show that these two are going to be wildly different because they're going to be wildly different. We'll show that it's a, gi a giant version of the telephone game. We'll have our proof. Except, but when they compared the two scrolls of Isaiah they found that they were largely identical with one another with the majority of differences being minor spelling variations, none of which changed the meaning of the text. And scholars learned very quickly 
that the library that we call the Bible was passed throughout history with absolute incredible care and precision, even before the printing press. And so all of a sudden, I learned that, wow, what, what we do have is actually reliable, that, that something really did happen with Jesus, that he really did live a perfect life, that he was buried in a tomb, that he was dead, that he was executed by people who were phenomenal at executing people. And these 12 disciples, they turned from people who were scared to people who were bold. Something, something magnificent happened with the person of Jesus. And that faith that had been my security for so long that it started to fade away, it slowly started to build back and back and back and back. And now all of a sudden I started to realize, hey, there, there are other people who have these kinds of questions, who have these kinds of concerns, who, who have these things that are in front of them that are stopping them from seeing the person of Jesus. And, and maybe, maybe I can help just a little bit with removing some of those barriers. And I was part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and I found out about this thing called a gig, which is a group investigating God it's a group that's geared for people who are non-believers or really young in their faith to be able to come and have spiritual conversations about God or Jesus or the Bible. Now, I was terrified on a college campus to invite a couple of guys over into my dorm room to have a conversation and be able to ask questions about the faith. But I had this amazing guy in my life named Brian who kept, kept on me. He said, when are you gonna invite him? Who are you gonna invite? You gonna, we're gonna do it in two weeks. That's when we're gonna start, okay, Chris? All right, Brian. <laughs> so I was an RA my junior and my senior year in college, and I invited a number of guys to be a part of this gig, this group investigating God. And they would come, they would write down their questions, and, and they would ask those questions. I would say, those are great questions. I have no clue what the answers are, but I know where to find them. I'd go away for a week, and I'd find those questions, and we'd come back and we'd talk about them. Well, two of the guys... Two of the guys that I invited into this group were Carter and John. Carter was a believer, but he was kind of in the same position that I was in when I was entering into college. His faith was, was fading away. And John was not a believer at all, completely agnostic, didn't grow up in a faith tradition at all. Both of them architecture majors. And over the course of the next eight or nine months, it was phenomenal to watch their faith grow and flourish because Carter went from somebody who was sort of backsliding in his faith to somebody who started to have this incredible hunger and passion for God. And John would start asking questions in our group and Carter would answer them. And I remember stepping back one day and saying, man, he's, he's come a long way. This is awesome. I love that. And John, one night, about nine months after we started this gig, John comes down and I hear this, on my door. I lived on the first floor. He lived on the second floor. And so he comes down to my room and knocked on the door. And I opened it up. And John comes into my room and he says, hey, Chris, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about making Jesus my Lord and Savior. I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. And I still can't believe what I said to John when he came into my room. I said, John, you better think long and hard before you do that. He said, because Jesus doesn't want just part of you, he wants the whole thing. Amen. I said, and you're signing up for a very serious commitment for the rest of 
your life. John was like, yeah, I, I will think about it. That's the door. Shuts the door. As soon as he shuts the door, oh, Lord, I talked John out of becoming a Christian. God, please get out of, don't get out of my own way. You know, like do whatever you want to do in John's life. And I pray that he would become a follower of Jesus. Well, remember, I was in college, so I didn't wake up until about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. The next morning, John comes down and he opens up the door and he says, hey, Chris, I just wanted to let you know that I became a Christian last night. When can I get baptized? Yeah, he is right. And here's the best part about the story for me. Because this is God's work, not mine. Both John and Carter, architecture majors from one of the top architecture programs in the country, could have gone anywhere. Both of them decided, we want to dedicate our lives full time to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus. So they both left lucrative careers, they went to seminary, and I uh, reached out to them recently. This is a picture of John and Carter. Carter's the one with the hat that looks like he should be a model in a magazine. <laughs> John is the one with the most epic beard ever. Two phenomenal guys. Well, John is wearing the hat of the church where he is now a pastor in Roanoke, Virginia. And, or excuse me, Carter's wearing the hat where he's a pastor, and John is now uh, leading a house church in Roanoke, Virginia as well, both of them sharing their stories about how God transformed their lives with other people who need to hear the hope that they have in Jesus. And when I step back from all of that, I can't help but see a faith you test is a story you tell. A faith you test is a story you tell. For some of you, you might be in the same place that I was when I was in high school. You might have questions, you might have doubts, you might have concerns, and you've been terrified to ask them for fear of what you might find out. Can I just encourage you for a moment? God's a lot bigger than you're giving him credit for right now. God understands that it's tough to give our entire lives over to him, but he doesn't ask us to check our minds at the door. He doesn't ask us to have blind faith. That is not a biblical concept. He's given us plenty of reason to trust in his goodness and his kindness and yes, even his existence. That doesn't mean that every single question that we have ever is going to be answered, but it does mean that God is willing to take your questions. And I can guarantee you that if you're honest with him and honest with yourself, that your faith will grow more than you ever realized it could. A faith you test is a story you tell. Or maybe your story is similar in that you've asked those kinds of questions before and you came to the same kind of conclusion that I did. 
And right now, you need to recognize that other people need to hear about the hope that you have in Jesus. You have a friend, a family member, a coworker, who needs to hear the hope that you have in Jesus and why you believe that he exists and that he is good and that he wants to have a living relationship with them. A faith you test is a story you tell. Or maybe you might say, hey, my story is absolutely nothing like yours, Chris, at all. Good. God did not design all of us to have the same story. Because guess what? The people who need to hear the goodness of God's glory, they don't all have the same questions. But God has uniquely designed every single one of you. He has uniquely worked in every single one of your lives. And he wants to use your story to reach a world that needs to have hope, that needs to hear of his goodness that needs to hear that there is only one name that is above every other name, and his name is Jesus. So will you tell your story, or will you hide it? Will you share it with others, or will you keep the goodness that God has given every single one of us to yourselves? If we don't share the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Who will? A faith you test is a story you tell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and for your kindness. God, you are good. Lord, thank you so much for the ways that you are working in John's and Carter's lives. And Lord, we pray for their ministries right now that you would let them flourish and that they would have such an incredible impact on the city of Roanoke, Virginia. Lord, I pray for every single person in this room. God, I pray that Charlotte and Fort Mill and Clover and all of the areas around us would never, ever look the same because we've been willing to be honest and tell other people about the good news of Jesus and what he's done in our lives. Lord, that we would be willing to tell our story of your goodness. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen.